0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
1: I know that there are a lot of people who just want to see the book they love or the comic that they love brought to the screen in exactly the way that that they know it, Um and that's a valid position to take, of course. But for me personally, I, I'm way more interested in uh, adaptations where the filmmaker takes something and makes it their own and, and uses it as kind of raw material for their their own art form, especially because, you know, the, a, a book will never translate exactly into a film, you know? Yeah. And, and and they, as you say, the book still exists. It still has its own value. It's, it's great as its own piece. And so to me, I think a filmmaker taking something and injecting uh, their own perspective creatively into it is is much more interesting.
0: everyone, and welcome to episode number 25 of The Fourth Wall. I'm, of course, your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals ranging from directors, actors, writers, you name it. This show, of course, is part of the Playlist Podcast Network where you can find the rest of our amazing film-centric show catalog. We're talking shows like The Discourse, Be Real, Deep Focus, and so much more. Whatever your fix is, we definitely have you covered over there. It's great to be back once again here in the month of October, and we've got a nice, very appropriate interview for you all with the director of one of the must-see films of the year, but especially during spooky season It's going to be one that you're not going to want to miss. I'm talking about Mr. Brandon Cronenberg, writer and director of the latest film, Possessor. Being the son of one of Canada's most heralded genre filmmakers casts a large shadow, and it often results in uninspired and unnecessary comparisons between their respective works that truthfully might not have been drawn otherwise. And look, I get it. There's a desire for film fans to want to group filmmakers together due to familial ties. But, you know, I feel like it's unfair. But it's something that Brandon Cronenberg has had to grapple with throughout the entirety of his filmmaking career thus far. And he's only two movies in. And to be honest with you, I've always found the two to have quite a different approach when it comes to horror. You know, David is definitely more of a practical effects driven uh, spectacle, violence, body horror kind of guy. And when it comes to Brandon, I, I feel like he seems more interested in allowing the world of his films to breathe and develop and uses that to crescendo to what I would consider to be a bloody fever dream. And with his latest film, Possessor, Look, it is, it's unlike anything you're going to see uh, for the rest of the year. And it's clear that the budding filmmaker is personifying the conflict and torment of his own personal identity crisis to say something incredibly relatable and, uh, You know, uh, topical, I would add. In Possessor, Tazia Voss, played by Andrea Riseborough, works for a secret organization with brain implant technology, allowing agents to inhabit other people's bodies and commit assassinations for wealthy clients. Yeah, it's as cool as that sounds, but that's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this film. As the years of becoming someone else begin to take a toll on her as she starts to lose semblance of her former self. When she gets to her later mission, it requires her to slip into the consciousness of Colin Tate played unbelievably well by Christopher Abbott uh, as the lines begin to uh, blur there but it's just first of all the performances in Possessor are exceptional but Brandon Cronenberg's Direction is something that's going to stick with you. It's going to get under your skin and it's going to make you think long after the credits have begun to roll. One of the things we talked about was sort of the origin of this idea. If you followed Cronenberg for any amount of time you'll know that his directorial debut Antiviral was the product of the filmmaker's own sickness as he obsessed over the idea of someone else being inside of you via the transmission of a disease. And so, sort of continuing with that exploration of existentialism, Cronenberg's sophomore effort was birthed out of his experience on the press tour for Antiviral, during which he struggled with the idea of creating a media persona detached from just being David Cronenberg's son and living life as a different person day to day. And it's fascinating that he should explore this kind of identity crisis because it's something that I think is present in a lot of, Canadian horror films and that is also something that we sort of touched on at the top of the episode here that I found incredibly interesting. We also touch on his previous artistic ventures in fine art and music and how that eventually led to him getting involved in film. We have a great discussion towards the end about practical versus digital effects and why he specifically thinks filmmakers stray away from the former. Obviously he's a big festival darling and so we talk about his time going to festivals and premiering genre films there, and and so much more. This is a fascinating conversation, and I, I absolutely enjoyed speaking with Brandon immensely. Great guy, super nice guy, uh, who is just creating... Incredibly different and thought-provoking films that I I hope you all uh, decide to check out after listening to this episode, if you haven't done so already. But the most important thing is to check out Possessor on October 9th. It's playing in drive-ins, select drive-ins across uh, the United States right now, Uh, but it will move to VOD this week. Friday and so you're definitely going to be on the lookout for that but anyways guys enough chit chat without further ado here is my conversation with Brandon Cronenberg um well hey Brandon how's it going
1: uh, it's going pretty well thanks how are you doing
0: yeah not too bad well I I, I <laughs> say that immediately after the fucking train wreck that was last night so that was um uh with the debate and everything so that was uh yeah, great but for
1: sure. No no one's really doing well right now, and, and I have to assume that you yeah. guys are doing especially poorly, but... Um.
0: Yeah, you know. I mean, like, I, I have, like, several fa- friends who are, like, uh, from the Toronto area and are from Canada and whatnot. I, I always go back and forth, and I'm just like, you know, maybe it would be better if I just moved there. You know, it just, like, maybe it, that would solve everything if I just, like, picked up my, my shop and, like, moved to Vancouver or Toronto or something like that, but...
1: Um, you know, p- people say that, but I-, I feel like we are always just slightly behind you guys. So whoever whoever mm-hmm. our trump is will probably be coming up in the next four years <laughs> or however.
0: Well, I I hope that's not the case. I I, w- I wouldn't wish that on anyone, to be honest with you. Um, but anyways, I well actually, kind of like going off of the Toronto thing. I was when I was watching um, Possessor, I-, I couldn't help but feel like this would have just been it would have done gangbusters at like. Uh, Midnight Madness um, at TIFF, and in, in, especially like in person this year, you know, like because I know you've had films there before, and like you went to Ryerson and stuff like that, and so like I, I'm sure you know there's like nothing like premiering a film there, especially a genre film like this.
1: Uh, for sure, for sure, and and uh, that is something I'm sad to have missed out on because uh, it, it, I love I love TIFF obviously, but also the Midnight Madness in, in particular is such a it's such a great time and a great vibe, so.
0: Yeah, for sure. But you, it's too bad. Oh yeah, no, it it definitely is. But it, well, especially in, like your your hometown and stuff. But I, I believe you're you're um you're you're taking it to other festivals though. Or, or, like obviously, I don't think it's going to be in person. But you're able to. I like I think it's going to be at London. It's going to be at um maybe a Fantastic Fest or something like that. So I guess when when you premiere a film like this at a festival, um. Does that, I mean, are, is there a certain level of excitement that sort of, like, comes with that, like, knowing that, like, especially a genre festival where people, like, eat this stuff up?
1: For sure. I mean, it's it's always, you know, an exciting honor to, to be at any sort of major festival. I mean, it's it's, it's thrilling. I, I'm still excited anytime anyone is even remotely interested in anything that I'm doing as mm-hmm. a filmmaker. So uh, to be able to play any of these festivals is, is great. Um it's of course a bit weird this year because I'm not going to any of them and, and as you mm-hmm. say, I, I think the the energy in the room uh, and being able to talk to audiences directly after the film and, and to be able to screen in that context uh, is really what's the most thrilling part of, about that I mean it premiered at Sundance and we were very lucky to, to be there because in a sense it was the last major film festival to to have a kind of normal uh, normal program yeah. um, so yeah, I mean it's it's symbolically still exciting because you're playing a festival, but it do, it doesn't have the same sort of personal level of excitement. That yeah, for sure. Well, being able to be there and engage with people in in, a, in the room, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Well, and especially with like certain sequences in this, like like especially the really, you know, the the the, the trippy fever dream, you know, with the 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 face uh, like pulling and stuff like that. The, the really like intense like Giallo inspired stuff. I feel like that would have just like. I, just just to like see people's reactions in a theater like I mean I, thankfully you got the chance to with Sundance and um whatnot but uh yeah that especially I can't even imagine what that would have been like for you
1: it, it was very interesting at, at the end there was this sort of quiet moment uh because obviously people had a, a fairly strong audible reaction to to some of that stuff yeah and then we had to do a Q&A afterwards and that, <laughs> uh, we're about to get murdered people are just going to literally kill us. Um, but then we got a, actually a positive reaction and, and the crowd was really engaged and yeah, the q yeah. went really well. So um, yeah, that was great. I mean, it, it, it got those strong reactions, but people liked them and, and that's the best I could possibly hope for.
0: Right, for sure. I mean, that's uh, that's the, the best case scenario. But um, so I, I kind of, I, I just doing a little bit of research and reading up, I, I read that the basic idea for the film was sort of birthed out of uh, your personal experience on the press tour for antiviral and like the notion that you had created sort of like a media persona for yourself and uh, just talking to like one of my uh, like friends who was from Toronto the other day, he was kind of enlightening me on the fact that a lot of Canadian horror films have like a similar thread uh, whether about like identity crisis and some capacity, like he brought up cube and Pontypool and stuff like that. Um, and then he was telling me about how that ties back to a larger comment about like how Canadians, I guess view themselves on the world stage, uh, you know, saying like the, the struggle with national identity and defining themselves as who they're not, uh, not who they are. Um, and so I, I think that that just like struck me as really interesting because I, I feel like it sort of links into the overall concept of the movie here and how it like sort of or originated. And so I guess I'm going to pose the question to you. Do you think the way the film was created um, uh, that it was like part of your identity as a Canadian or just like, you know, your own personal journey?
1: That's interesting. I mean, I, I didn't think of it as part of my identity as a Canadian. I, I know what you're saying and yeah. it's absolutely true. Canadian identity is very interesting. We're kind of like our relationship to the United States is in some ways what I understand the relationship between New Zealand and Australia to be like, we're you know, <laughs> kind of like uh, people see a, sort of lump us in together, but we're different. And so our, our uh, identity is ends up being defined by what we're not, as you say, on, on a certain level. I didn't have that in mind when I was making the film. It was very much uh, a personal experience. Mm -hmm. Traveling with a film for the first time is incredibly surreal because you're constructing a public persona, basically, and and you're performing this other version of yourself, this new version of yourself, you know, this media self that then runs off and has its own life without you on a certain level. And so, that that experience and a few other things led me to feel like i was waking up in the morning and and sitting up into someone else's life and uh and having to madly construct some kind of character who could operate in that context Mm. Uh, so i wanted to write a film about somebody who uh who may or may not be an imposter in their own life uh, as a way of talking about how we how we build characters and how we build narratives uh, in order to function as human beings. For other people, of course, we perform for other people, but we also perform for ourselves. I, I don't think the the way we see ourselves represents the true version of who we are. I, mm. I think we have our own uh, self-image and personal uh, mythologies as well.
0: Well, I, I think you definitely get a lot of that in uh, like Tazia's home life, you know, where she's, uh, I mean, she's like performing, but she's also like, this is who I want to be, but it's not who I am. And it Mm -hmm. obviously, not to give anything away, but when you get to the film, it's like the, her like link to what she thought that she was is taken from her. And so it's like now she's able to function as a regular person. And I I just, I don't know, that to me was just like so interesting uh, when you can kind of like remove certain parts of a person's, uh, you know, mental state or personality. And it's like they kind of function better.
1: Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And and I think, You know, it's more interesting or less interesting depending on who you are, but I think that tension between, for all of us, who we are internally, if we're we're being honest about it, and and the incredible range of thoughts and emotions, and then who we uh, sort of have to be in a performance sense to fit into whatever particular version of, of civilized society we inhabit.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I I guess just sort of on a more basic level, would you say that you incorporated more of yourself into uh, Tazia or Colin, or was it sort of like an equal dispersing of both? Because just, I guess just given the, the you know, the context of the the, the origin of the movie, I can sort of see bo- like yourself in both characters, but I, I would just kind of want to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're both and neither, you know, Not, neither of them are meant to stand in for me, but I think you, mm-hmm. uh, when you're writing especially from a personal place, you put yourself into all of your characters, really. I'm, all of them have bits of me. All of them have bits of people I know. All of them have invented elements. You know, you, you sort of mash yourself up with experiences you have, have in life and, and you uh, reach for these things because uh, sometimes they're relevant to what you're doing and sometimes they are just almost tactile details of uh, character and
0: personality that are mm-hmm. at your fingertips. Cool. Yeah, for sure. So um, the other interesting thing that I discovered about you is that you dabbled in multiple art forms, I guess, before you eventually discovered film. So like you did, uh, you were like a fine artist in in a sense, you did like drawing, painting, Uh, you're, I guess, um, involved in the music scene, the Toronto music scene and whatnot. And then you did all that before finding film. And so do you think that uh, your creative background in fine art, uh, because I guess from like a you know like a physical standpoint there is a lot of um interpretation of like of like the human body and whatnot. not do, do you feel like your your work there kind of influenced your uh perception of of the human body
1: um that's interesting i mean i i didn't i i didn't really do that kind of fine art you know you know i did do okay, okay. you know, some life drawing and some sort of stuff but i i didn't get so into that kind of um traditional anatomical art i do think having some experience in those various uh, media helps with, with film because, you know, you have to engage with, with composers when you're dealing with the music mm-hmm. uh, side of film. You have to have a visual sense. You have to, if you're writing, you have to be able to write. But also, even if you're not writing, you have to be able to engage with uh, a written work and tell a story and, and that kind of thing. So, I, yeah, I think all that stuff was, was quite useful. Um, even if, though I didn't get anywhere in particular with it,
0: <laughs> yeah. So I guess what was sort of like your your go to when you did start dabbling in that stuff was it just like just basic like I, I guess not life drawings, but like um, I don't know, was it more landscape stuff like structural or, or like architecture or something like that? Uh, no, I mean it was
1: uh, sort of I guess weird cartoons and and kind mm-hmm. of these. Um, it's it's hard hard to explain exactly slightly mm. psychedelic cartooning maybe it's like <laughs> the closest <laughs> I get it I I had a few art shows and, and like published a couple of drawings but it wasn't it wasn't like a fully developed career it's just something that I was pursuing for a number of years uh, along with playing in some bands and writing
0: yeah for sure what like what what genre of music did you sort of dabble into
1: um for many years I was in a I don't know what, what how you would describe it psychedelic you know kind of throwback improvisational band as a teenager mm, okay. um i was in a sort of punk band in my 20s again this is it's not like this wasn't serious, <laughs> serious oh, oh yeah musical. for sure Yeah, I, yeah. I, was, I was serious about it but i never got anywhere with it so um right it, it, these aren't bands you would have heard of but i, I played in a range of bands
0: no i i, I totally get that I, I mean i have just i mean i live with friends who are still playing in like bands like that and it's just like you know you have certain people who take it seriously, then you have other people who are just like, Well, you know, I maybe I just want to settle down and it's like, Oh, and then it ruins everything for everyone. And so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I everyone get dreams
1: of becoming a rock star for a while and then, you know, yeah it's a hobby.
0: Well, I mean, the the good thing for you is that you were like because you had, I guess, all these different backgrounds and like, you know, writing, drawing, and then like like the visual medium along with the audio, you were able to incorporate it into um film in in some capacity so i i guess actually that would be a good question like do, you know because you come from such a diverse artistic background do you think that uh filmmakers are sort of like the modern day renaissance people
1: um i mean yeah that's that's an interesting way to put it i think you have to be and and to me that's what's exciting about it because it's sort of one art that contains so many other art forms and if mm-hmm. you have a range of interests uh, it's hugely gratifying because uh, I can engage in, in the visual side of it and the music side of it and the writing side of it, but still focus on one thing because it's hard. Um, you know, maybe this, is, this just speaks to my own limitations as, as a human being and an artist, but uh, if, if you like all of that stuff, it's hard to do all of it well because any of those can be a, you know, a, a lifetime of effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. film, film is a great way to focus interest in, in a variety of media.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I I I think that's what makes it like so sort of like universally beloved. I mean, you, you know, there there are people who are more into like music than other people. And then obviously art is a very more of a niche thing as well. But it's like film can like bring everyone together because it is sort of like that melding of all the mediums. And I, I, I don't know, at least for me, like that's one of the reasons that I've always gravitated towards it, along with like the storytelling. So, um, but yeah, for sure. Uh, so I guess th- being like a fan of... Uh, literature because i also read that you were you're a big like i guess you consider yourself like a book nerd and stuff like that and you grew up reading a lot of like philip k dick and stuff which i think you can definitely uh get the sense of in 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 your work um do you think that we've really um we've really hit our stride when it comes to adapting literature whether it's like for for television or or film or something like that um
1: it's interesting i mean there's always been such a rich history of adaptation in film, you know, through most of most, most of the history of the medium. So I, uh, I think maybe what's different right now is that we have a lot of very high-budget television adaptations going on. You know, obviously people talk about this being an era of great television, and it's true. Television is now very high-budget and very artful and taken very seriously. And so I think um, that can lend itself very well to literary adaptations because one of the great challenges often is condensing a book-sized story into a film-sized story. Right, uh, right. But with television, you have this—you uh, have this structure that kind of allows you to do anything. So I think that's new. But I don't know. I mean, there's so many great adaptations uh, right. throughout, throughout history.
0: Well, and I guess the interesting thing about it is that, like, you know, you always have the book to fall out back onto, but it's like, you know, something like The Shining, which is so radically different from the book, but is able to, like, stand on its own in its own regard. I think that's sort of, like, what interests me about uh, adaptations is, like, you can you can go both ways. You can do, like, the, the faithful, like, the, the copy and paste dialogue from the novel or the graphic novel or whatever into uh, the work, or you can, like take a complete uh, sort of different approach to it. Um, I don't know for you, if you, if you ever like considered adapting a, a piece of work, I know this is kind of hard to answer, but if you ever were to do that, it was there, is there a certain approach that you think that you would take to it?
1: Oh, definitely. I, I think the irreverent approach is, is better. I, I know that's sort of an unpopular answer because you, there's a, you read a lot of discussions online with people who are disappointed in an adaptation because it, it deviates from the source material and, and mm-hmm. I know that there are a lot of people who just want to see the book they love or the comic that they love brought to the screen in exactly the way that, that they know it. Um, And that's a valid position to take, of course. But for me personally, I I'm way more interested in uh, adaptations where the filmmaker takes something and makes it their own and, and uses it as kind of raw material for their, their own art form, especially because, you know, the, a book will never translate exactly into a film you know yeah. and, and and they all, as you say the book still exists it still has its own value it's it's great as its own piece and so to me i think a filmmaker taking something and injecting uh, their own perspective creatively into it is, is much more interesting
0: yeah no for sure is, is there like a specific work that you that you think that you'd want to tackle uh, in adapting whether it be for like a, a film or, or television
1: um, I, the ones that I want keep getting adapted. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's always how it is. That's, that's always how it is. <laughs> I keep missing out every time I'm, I'm about to like suggest uh, that we try to get the rights for something. So that I, I find out someone else has, has already done it.
0: What, what? What was? Is there like? Um, I guess one that off off the top of your head is there one that like you know you were like really passionate about that? I guess has been adapted. I don't. I don't even know if you could talk about it, but like you know.
1: Oh I mean like most recently the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge I was like I want to do a Philip K Dick adaptation I think okay. that would be great. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, a, his stuff is actually really difficult to adapt though because it, it tends to be uh, I think cinematically very would would require a huge budget there's a lot of spaceships and and future cities and and yet his stories are so personal and human and and strange so yeah. He's definitely yeah. a hard one. I'd love to have the opportunity to do uh, to do one of those major novels of, of his.
0: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, okay, so moving into I guess like the uh I, I guess the, the, the approach to possessor and stuff like that, sort of like the practical effects versus CGI. I, I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot, but um, you know, there's there's like a stigma that you know uh CGI effects are, tend to be like cheaper than practical effects. Uh but I guess in your case, um or in your experience, or in stuff that you viewed, do you do you really believe that to be the case?
1: Do you mean cheaper in
0: uh, like budgetary in the sense? No, like budgetary uh, wise.
1: No, I find, honestly, there are certain things that you can do practically that I would say are are way cheaper than uh, doing as computer effects. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good VFX are not that cheap to be honest bad vfx are 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 cheap but bad practical effects are cheap also and and i think um you know some of some of the stuff that we did in terms of deforming the image during those hallucinatory scenes you know re-photographing uh sequences and and using lenses and gels and and flares Mm -hmm. that stuff is pretty uh pretty cheap to do, but I, I would say pretty effective and in my mind has this great texture to it and this great quality that, you know, the unofficial last shoot day of the film was me and uh, Kareem Hussein, my cinematographer in his living room for 15 hours, just like shooting uh, a cloud tank with this probe lens and then refilming stuff off his screen uh, and through weird lenses and gels. And, and mm-hmm. that's something that we could just do the two of us, uh, through a process of experimentation, I, th- I think doing that with computers would be much more expensive because you'd have to engage a, a company and you'd have to spend time developing that look.
0: Right. Uh, so I, I guess, why, why would you say that more... I, I, I don't know, it's hard to compare, I guess, like a, a multi-million like million dollar film versus like, um, you know, an independent film where I think I agree with you. I think it is probably a little bit more accessible to do the practicality you know like the, the the gumshoe uh, or the you know chewing gum and tape and stuff like that um but I guess for you why do you think that um more people just kind of like lean heavily into the the digital side of the effects is it like out of laziness or
1: I don't know I, I mean it's just sort of I guess become so much a part of the the filmmaking process you, you do it digitally even lighting you know a lot of uh cinematographers light a scene in a fairly flat way with the intention of essentially adding contour to it after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, There certainly is a great degree of flexibility there because anytime you do something practically, you're in a sense baking it in. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe some of it is that, maybe some of it is just a bit of a lost art. I personally think, though, there are two things that I like about practical practical effects, and I, I don't have anything against computer effects. and And there were some VFX in the film, not not many. It's mostly practical. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are times when that's the that's the best approach. Um, but two things: first of all, I think practical effects tend to have a certain weight and texture to them on screen that VFX don't always have. I think if you could at least start with a convincing practical effect and then touch it up and enhance it uh, with VFX you're going to get something that has more impact than if you just rely entirely on e- even for scenes of violence if you're just relying on yeah. uh, digital squibs and, and blade extensions and, and stuff I, I feel like it just it, it's a little floatier it doesn't quite have the impact a lot of people can't see it but they can feel it um, to me it's also a process question though because when you are uh, experimenting with practical effects this this is certainly true especially on the camera side kareem and i spent a huge amount of time just experimenting with gels and different lenses and video feedback and and just you know being in a room with your hands on materials uh seeing what you can come up with leads to all of these happy accidents which then Mm -hmm. uh open up a path for you to explore and so you get to stuff that you wouldn't have if you had done it digitally i think because digitally you would be conceiving of it in advance and then having someone execute it, whereas there's room for those uh, those accidents and experimentation when mm-hmm. it's something that you're actually physically holding.
0: Mm-hmm gotcha gotcha Um, well I gotta start wrapping it up here but I do have one quick final question for you we usually like to do a thing on this podcast called uh, film essentials where it's like the essential movies that someone should watch if they want to better understand and appreciate uh, the movie that they've just seen which in this case would be Possessor so I'm going to ask you what would be the essential um, I guess uh, pieces of film literature or television that someone should watch if they want to better get inside your head for what you were thinking of when you were making Possessor
1: I, I don't know <laughs> the answer, I, don't, I don't think there's anything uh, there's anything essential I mean I think the more uh, it, it's always nice to go into something having a background in you know science fiction or in, mm-hmm. in, in horror you know if, if you um, you know maybe you can get more out of something if you're plugged into the history of it but there is uh, I'm sorry that's a terrible answer but there's oh, nothing that I, I can point to that is the, uh, the essential film no, to watch or anything
0: totally fine no worries I, I i definitely get it but anyways uh brandon thank you so much for your time i really enjoyed the conversation uh and i absolutely loved possessor it was fucking phenomenal loved it it's been oh, thank you so much yeah it's just been one of those films that I haven't been able to get out of my head for a while so uh ec- excellent work oh that's extremely kind of
1: you man thanks a lot yeah.
0: Well, there you have it, guys. That was my conversation with writer-director Brandon Cronenberg. Such a fascinating individual and a delightful human being. I really uh, am going to be watching what he does with his career uh, with interest. I I have loved everything he's done thus far, and uh, he's an incredibly exciting name in horror. And so, look. You know, as much as we don't want to make comparisons between Cronenbergs here, the name Cronenberg, I think we can now say, is synonymous with horror. And so, again, be sure to check out Possessor if you haven't gotten a chance to already. It hits VOD this Friday, October 9th, and if you want to see it in drive-ins, it's playing there now, so definitely go take advantage of that. But now, I want to hear from you all, and I want to know what your favorite sci-fi horror film is down in the comments section of wherever you're listening to this episode. Be sure, as always, to subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network so you don't miss another episode of The Fourth Wall, along with the rest of the amazing podcasts we're putting out there. Again, The Discourse, Be Real, Deep Focus, a whole lot of content here on a weekly basis. So be sure to subscribe to that feed. And then also, if you really want to make our day and you want to make me happy specifically, be sure to leave us a rating and a review because it greatly helps the show out, the entire podcast network out, as a matter of fact. And it lets us know what you're loving and what you want to see more of hopefully i'll be back soon with another spooky interview for you and if not spooky just another interview again i'm having a blast conducting these conversations and i hope you enjoy listening to them as much as i enjoy uh you know talking with these uh, incredibly talented and remarkable individuals but until then guys thanks for listening if you like me specifically and you like what i have to say you can give me a follow on twitter at griff schiller all right that's gonna do it for this episode and we'll catch you next time take care